I'm Nigel Cassidy and welcome to a slightly different episode of the CIPD podcast. Last week, the CIPD hosted its Festival at Work at London Olympia. It was a two-day conference bringing together thousands of people, professionals and business leaders to discuss the new world of work. For one of the sessions, I took to the stage to interview two special guests, the CIPD's own Digital Learning Portfolio Manager, Georgia Gamba-Quilliam, and Susie Miller, author of Designing Accessible Learning Content. Our conversation focused on learning, whether a one-size-fits-all approach to learning is feasible, and the practicalities of designing adaptable, inclusive and vitally accessible learning experiences. In this episode, you'll get a chance to hear that conversation in full, or if you were at the festival, to hear it again. I hope you enjoy it. Well, on behalf of the whole podcast team, fantastic to see so many of you joining us for this session. Really, this is all about whether you can box clever and design for everybody. Does one size really fit all when it comes to your learning and communication? And um, of course, we all know the reasons why this is incredibly important. One in five of the working population say they have a physical or psychological uh, disability which uh, may impede how they use materials. And uh, I I know there's a great desire in the whole uh, HR community to do better with our digital communication. So our digital learning is failing in some areas. This session we hope will be incredibly practical in showing how it can be put right, how to fix it. Well, welcome to the stage here at Olympia. Uh, Alongside me, the CIPD's uh, own award-winning digital learning portfolio manager. She's created content for high-profile clients from the Liberal Democrats to the Red Cross, and she was on the team that launched the CIPD's own online platform learning hub. It's Georgia Gamba-Quilliam. Hello. Hi, everyone. It's brilliant to be out, isn't it, instead of working from home? All these real people. (laughs) And we're both delighted uh, to hear from a fated specialist in this field. She's author of the book Designing Accessible Learning Content, which I know is on sale at the CIPD stand over there, a passionate advocate for digital accessibility, the founder and director of Ella Hub, Susie Miller. Uh, So, Susie, before we get on to designing or redesigning, uh, I was struck by how you make a distinction between accessibility and inclusivity, because basically both terms are used and exchanged, aren't they? Um, Most people know they can follow all the guidelines that are out there to make their material, uh, their online learning accessible, but does that mean that it's inclusive? I think starting from accessibility is a great place to start because I think a lot of us haven't actually started on understanding what accessibility means and how to make our content accessible. So basically, I think accessibility quite often is seen as meeting you know, the particular web content accessibility guidelines or, or, or standards. However, I think um, it is possible to create a piece of learning which does tick all of the boxes, but it still isn't a great piece of learning. And for me, that's where the, the, this idea of inclusivity comes in. If it's an inclusive experience, it's, it's a welcoming, you know, positive experience for everybody. So it's a good piece of learning which doesn't exclude anyone at all. So I think we were, as well as, you know, 
being accessible for everybody, making sure that there are no barriers which exclude anyone with any type of access needs. So it could be vision, hearing, motor or cognitive as we've discussed. It actually is, as I say, it's a great piece of learning experience. So it's as e equally good for someone who is using assistive technology as it is for someone who isn't using assistive technology. And it also, it's also, you know, that the language that's used is inclusive, that the imagery that's used is inclusive. So it's altogether a welcoming, inclusive experience for everybody. I've heard you give a great example about a restaurant. Yeah, so an example from um, one of the, the contributors uh, did a case study for my book, and she's recently um, released a video which explains the difference between accessibility and inclusion. And, and the, the example that, she, that really struck me was the idea of a group of people going to a restaurant with someone who uses a wheelchair. And although the restaurant was accessible, in the video, um, all of the people who aren't using a wheelchair are, went into the main entrance and had that lovely welcoming experience. The wheelchair user was, was taken around the back of the restaurant, you know, dark alley, dustbins, people smoking, then through the kitchens, then past the toilets, and then joined her friends. And for me, that was, you know, a, it just kind of a light bulb moment. Yes, it was an accessible experience, but it wasn't an inclusive experience. And then I suddenly thought, my goodness, that applies to learning as well. We can make learning accessible. We can tick all of the boxes. But what we really need to be and in, a, in an ideal world doing is making it inclusive for everybody. Georgia, what's your take on the difference between these two? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, am I very loud? I hear what's Okay. Uh, like Susie just said, if, it's if also... If in doubt, just plough on. That's what they told me. <laughs> okay. Uh, like Susie just said, it's also about thinking about what images and language we use. So, for example, if you don't see yourself represented in any of the images, if everybody in every image that you have is... I don't know, white, for example. If you're not white, then you wouldn't feel as included in that. If you don't see yourself represented, then you don't feel so engaged. So I think that's also something to think about, which makes goes beyond the accessibility requirement of having the old text on the image. And same for the language. I mean, especially if you want to produce global content like we do at CIPD, you want a language that is simple, not simplistic, but simple so that it's easy for everybody to comprehend no matter their background and their first language or whatever it might be. So there's a lot to think about when you want to go yeah, beyond accessibility requirement to really inclusive learning. Okay, so going a bit more into the detail now, um, it's such a big topic and if you look online at guidelines, I mean they run to hundreds and hundreds of pages. So how do you start, Susie, in looking through your content and reimagining it so that it's useful for everybody without oversimplifying it or, or just cutting whole things out? So I think um, understanding it and breaking it down, I think it does, when you, when you start tackling accessibility, I, can think, I think one of that is one of the major reasons that so many people just look at accessibility and think it's just too difficult you know that it's it is such a you know a huge area and there's so yeah. many different standards so for me it is a question of, of coming up with a strategy and a, a way of accessing that so for me and um, that's part of the reason that I wrote the book because I just felt as a, as a learning designer myself I needed something that simplified it and allowed me to, to, to you know to actually make it more accessible for me really and you so, come up with some headings for people 
country? Yes, yeah, so the, the access needs, you mean, yeah. yeah. So uh, either, for me, it's like a, it could be a contextual framework, as I came up with in the book, or for, for a lot of people, if you're trying to make, understand it yourself or trying to explain it to other people, then breaking it down into different access needs. So maybe thinking of vision access needs, hearing access needs, cognitive and motor access needs, and really kind of understanding what you need to do for each of those categories, those lenses of, of access need is a, re a great place to start. I just wonder if we could just ask our audience, maybe just on a show of hands, how many of you have either been tasked with making some improvements and uh, been uh, just not sure where to go next? I mean, is this a problem? Interesting, yes. About, uh, about a dozen hands have gone up. So <laughs> this is a familiar problem. It is, Georgia. yeah, definitely. And I think to address it, it's really important to have the right people on the team. So I work as a content manager, so content is my expertise, but I couldn't really come out with it and end the result of a learning product that is really accessible and inclusive without the other members of my team, including instructional designers and people who really understand how to translate this into digital product that is accessible. So it's really important to have the right skills on the team. and. Our own research at CIPD has shown that actually, although investment in L&D has not gone down with the pandemic, the, the roles that have been hired or, or maintained on the teams are not necessarily all the roles that a team needs to be able to create this. It's, it's a bit, it can be complex, but it, it, it can be done much better by professionals. <laughs> Now, Susie Miller, I was in on a workshop you did before this podcast, and I'm just picking on one example here. You got a little exercise going, and you showed how drag and drop is a very difficult thing, and you devised something in some of your own work to overcome this so that people could sort of match things without physically moving them. But I can imagine a lot of senior managers, for example, who are not familiar with... Uh, making things more accessible, they might say, look, you're restricting me. You're telling me I can't do drag and drop, say I can't use audio because somebody might not be able to hear it or that you might. In other words, how do you convince people that they can actually say what they want to, that they're not either patronizing people or at the other extreme, not providing materials that do the job? So I think, um accessibility still is in in our particular industry accessibility is interestingly kind of labeled as something that limits limits you and obviously if you're passionate about accessibility um, like a lot of people are then the more you find out about it then the more you realize actually if you make something accessible, it does become a better learning experience. If you're, you're, you're designing for everybody, then it, it makes you think empathetically. It makes you think, actually, you know, it's, it's beneficial to people who have access needs for me to include captions and to include a transcript, but it's also beneficial for so many other people, so many other learners. So for me, accessibility adds to the learning rather than takes takes away so i think when you're the, when you were saying about does it make it simplistic so even just looking at plain language sometimes people think well you know if, if i make the language you know the plain you know, it's it's dumbing it down and actually i think that you know the research is that that everybody benefits from plain english as you were saying yes. before so a plain language mm. so it, it's the way that we read online we skim and scan so it's a different way of accessing content so making it you know making it simplifying it and and saying things more um you know in fewer words is better for everybody 
Yeah, I, to I totally agree because uh, it encourages creativity rather than taking away, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, I was just working recently with actually an, um, an instructional designer and, and developer, and I was saying, I was explaining how I would like to get something across in a, in a course. And they said, oh, the, the platform can't do this, but that rather just the conversation finishing there, <laughs> it just encouraged him to think out of the box and come up with different solutions that they wouldn't maybe have thought about straight away. So yeah, it definitely encourages creativity and thinking out of the box. When you compare what's happening in the, in the learning and development sphere, and you compare that to you know advances in technology, in our, so, for example, in the gamification industry, we've got games that are incredibly accessible, that are doing incredible things, and yet we're still talking about drag and drops. You know, we've got games where, you know, haptic technology, we've got, you know, you can literally, the, the, the most accessible games are out there, and yet in our, our industry, we seem to be so far behind. We have that, the, the kind of, as I say, the fact that, that accessibility limits rather than innovates and makes people think out of the box. So I think we need to change as an industry, and the tools also need to improve so that you have accessible versions of things, which must be, I know some tools are really now um, pushing accessibility, so that it's getting better. Uh, Georgia, you have a pretty good overview of the CIPD and what organisations are doing or trying to do. So can you give any advice on how you make a start? We saw from the show of hands from the audience, people do find this difficult. So do you have to assemble a team? Do you need outside consultants necessarily? Yeah, there's no one way to do it that is right. It depends very much of your, the size of your organization, the context you work in, but certainly relying on the, the right expertise for the job is, is a good place to start. Now that might mean hiring someone or it might mean using a consultant that is really very much dependent on the context but certainly not um, expecting that anyone with an L&D sort of role, any kind of L&D role must know everything about all of this because yeah it's impossible basically. So Susie, talk us through the practicalities of bringing a new design. Um, clearly, you've a lot of experience of doing this. You know the right people to talk to. But uh, how would you make a, a start in an organisation? Quite often, it starts. You know, the the, the the seed quite often starts with a person in an L and D role. And it certainly was this case mm. in mind that I just there are people who are creating content who gen you know are feeling it's not it this is not right that I do not know how to make it accessible. I want my content to be accessible for everybody, and that's that that's the germ. And then for it for me to be access, uh, successful, it needs to have that leadership support. It needs to, but very often it starts at, groups, at grassroots level, and there's that there's nothing wrong with that at all. For me, that's the power behind accessibility, mm. and that's really uh, why I wrote the book was because I felt. I found it so difficult that there were so many times I nearly gave up that I thought, okay, all of the work that I'm doing I want to share. So I, I think that it's got the power of, of someone really passionate can, can at least go and understand it from that point of view. Not that I'm trying to promote the book, but I, it's just, <laughs> it's just I was, I was where, about, where I, was, I started. I was about to say other books are available, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure whether they are on this exact subject. I don't think they are at the moment, but they may be soon. <laughs> But uh, the, the, the most important thing for it to be to become, you know, embedded in an organisation is that it doesn't stop at that grassroots yeah. level. And I yeah, I totally agree. I think not everybody maybe can do the technical side of it, and you do need the right prof um, professions for that. But ev 
everybody can be an advocate of it and really make the case for it and talk to their colleagues and the leadership and say, well, we, as an organisation, we don't want to accept that we create something that is not accessible. Is, is there an element of needing sometimes to convince senior managers that these are changes for the better? Because I can imagine somebody saying, look, our materials are readily understood by 80%, by all the people in this business area. Why should we compromise in design for the 20% who have difficulties? How do you argue that one size fits all wherever possible? It's just so much better. Well, it's not about compromising. Like we, both Susie and I were saying, it's about making something better for everybody. So it's really not writing for the 20% or creating for the 20% but for the 100%. And yeah, maybe the 80% might be able to access what we do, but really do we have any hard evidence of that either? Because yeah. a lot of disabilities are hidden and a lot of people don't want to share their own disabilities. So we're making huge assumptions about the number of people who can access what we're producing. So if we, if we make the most possible accessible thing, then that's when we reach Can you not the, find out uh, about that? How do you know that your materials aren't hitting the spot, that people are, are just having difficulties every time they run a programme or something. Yeah, of course, you can find out by asking your own people through surveys, through a HR system, by collecting internal data. But I'm not sure that that many people do it. But even if you do do it, some people might not want to disclose some information about themselves. So it's better to have for everybody rather than um, assuming that people can access well, You're it. saying it's better to have something for everybody. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> Can I add to that as well? Then yes. Also, we are also accommodating people who have, so you're talking about people with permanent access needs, but the huge, you know, if you, if you think about people who have temporary and situational yes. access needs, if you think about a, the ageing population, you think about people who are not happy, you know, are not comfortable disclosing a disability, but also people who are, are not, have not a diagnosed disability. So for me, I, for many years, uh, I've suspected that I was di uh, dyslexic, but you know, a lot of people have got neurodiversity or neurodivergent traits and haven't been diagnosed with them. So, you know, but those are, uh, and that for me, the, the kind of that whole neurodivergent, the neurodiversity angle is, is really, really important. Yeah, it's also about easiness of access, isn't it? For example, if you're looking at a video and you haven't got any impediment to be able to see it, but you're in a public space or in a noisy space or on a bus, you don't want to listen to it. You want to be able to read captions or read a transcript. So, some yeah, that's why I'm saying something that's more accessible makes life easier for everybody, even if it, physically you, you don't have any issues accessing that content. We've talked a lot about uh, accessibility. Um, what about the, the other areas that are becoming more important? Are, is there a sense that it's actually for, for an organisation that wants to do the right thing, there's more stuff that people should be considering which isn't even uh, necessarily part of their kind of formal agenda, if you like? Yeah, it's not just a question of accessibility. Obviously, we talked a lot about digital accessibility, but there are a lot of considerations to do for also when people can access content. So in that respect, digital content can open up accessibility to a lot of people who couldn't potentially travel to a place to access learning or access at specific times if it's 
um, self-learning, obviously digital learning can be also delivered in real time, but um, you know, it's, if it's there accessible all time in the flow of work, when you need it, where you need it, it opens up to a lot of people who might not be able to, for caring responsibility, because of the nature of the job, or even because their career transitioning, they don't want to tell um, their current employer that they're learning something different. So there is a variety an infinite variety of people and reasons why we access content and training that it, you know, makes it worthwhile to have it as flexible as possible. Susie, how scary are all the official guidelines, if you like, online? I mean, there's you, you, again, at your workshop, you were demonstrating there's uh, applications you can do to check your color contrast. There's m massive, long um, documents about um, language. Um, people might find this task, as we were saying earlier, a bit scary. So I think it... it it's you know the, the the driver really behind trying to d decide what your what your strategy is. So I think if your organisation, for example, is a public sector body, then you need to be more aware of the guidelines because you have a legal duty under the public sector body's accessibility regulations to be making your content accessible to the web content accessibility guidelines. Very you know version two point one level A and double A. So that gives you you know a, a very clear framework. Under the Equality Act, every organisation has an anticipatory duty to make their make their content, you know, to, to provide reasonable adjustments. And from the point of view of um, what that means for digital content, then the, the kind of underpinning best practice are those guidelines. That was really, I think, cemented in into law by the public sector bodies. And even organisations who aren't public sector bodies you know, for best practice should be, you know, meeting those international guidelines. You know, from a pragmatic point of view, it is difficult, particularly in learning content, to always meet every single guideline. And my, um, you know, my best piece of advice, really, that I, that I give to clients is one of the requirements, actually, of the public sector bodies is that you provide an accessibility statement. Now, that is, as I say, a legal requirement. But for me, as a learning designer uh, and developer, it is such a beneficial thing to provide to my learners and to also allow me to basically address any constraints. So not, all, not everything that I want to do or am able to do as a learning designer and developer may fit so sometimes I might have constraints because my organization needs me or I'm working with clients who want a particular thing. But if I have the option of having an accessibility statement, I can tell learners up front that this is, you know, it, within this learning, it meets the, the, the majority of the requirements. However, for a particular reason, I may not be able to, to meet everything. So for me, what's happened in the past is because, as you say, um, it can seem so scary that people just... It, they kind of want to, to bury their heads in mm. the sand and they, and, and they don't, you know, they don't feel confident. For me, this idea of having an accessibility statement is a really beneficial way of helping learners and also allowing you to, to kind of to, to, to acknowledge that there are constraints. It's not possible always to meet every single one of the requirements. Yeah, that's such a good point. I would say don't make perfect be the enemy of good. So if you can make some improvements, it's better than doing nothing, right? Sometimes I feel... If you feel overwhelmed by the, all these the regulations, you might just want to give up altogether, but it's still better to take baby steps and do something rather than 
just not attempting an improvement at all. So there's one phrase that's um, actually going on on social media at the moment about accessibility, which is progress over perfection. And I love that because I really think, you know, if, if, you, if you accept it isn't always possible to make everything 100% compliant, but you just, as you said, mm. your baby steps, you're just making a bit of progress. It has a huge, huge impact on people. And, and we don't... We it, don't Indeed, the people in this room uh, have that <laughs> have that responsibility. I can see people yeah. writing that down as you said it. Uh, we're almost coming to the end. We have got time for a few questions. Um, who would like to ask a question? One at the front here. Thank you. Um, my question is in relation to um, the fact that with the pandemic and us becoming very, very digital, some some. Um, companies um, and public sector as you mentioned Susie um, they've it's light years um, in, in that how we've developed and adopted technology but we have very diverse needs um, just if you point to the generations we have in the workforce so how can we um, confidently say that we 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 need help we need to um the support to kind of even access some of this um uh, uh, learning and development or just being able to use anything to to be effective so. uh, when you say we need help you mean the the, the lnd community well yeah, the lnd but even uh, lnd community is here to help uh, our staff so for everyone sure so, yeah and of course so many things have just grown like topsy haven't they during the uh, pandemic we've got all this hybrid working rather kind of mixed solutions some very successful some not yes i mean what, what's been out there has been a bit mixed hit and misses sometimes but i mean i think it's important to develop ourselves of course as lnd professionals there's been lots of research in the past years that shows we're the last one to look after ourselves um but yeah we we cannot be expected to improve and to learn more and to do better without our own uh, development put put in place as well. So I think there's a really good case to be made for LND people to also be developed and keep developing, and also role modelling in that way. After all, we're asking everybody else to do it, so we we need to do it ourselves as well. And maybe Susie, more intelligent conversations with users. Yeah. So. In what way? Well, in the sense that, um, I mean, the question from the floor suggested that uh, um, solutions are lacking sometimes, okay. and you wonder, how would anybody know, even? Okay. They need to talk to the people who, who are using the uh, training and uh, systems. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And for me, I think that the, the one, the, the huge benefit, really, of, of, of what happened when, you know, when everything suddenly went digital for me there, there was a real strong feeling of empathy because everybody was in the same mm. situation and, and for me from an accessibility point of view that was where the temporary and the situational kind of aspect really came to life people understood how difficult it was to be working in an environment where you were homeschooling children and you maybe didn't have the you know you had um, you know old computer equipment you didn't have the right you know so it, that was that's the bit I hope we don't lose because we begin, we really did understand and we could empathise with what other people were going through in that situation. I think to, to carry that learning on and to really sort of feed it into everything we do is a key a key learning for me. Uh, another question here, um, Susie. You from what you were saying, it sounds like the ideal thing to do when you're creating. Um, digital learning or other forms of learning resources or programs is to build in that inclusive experience 
for everyone from the start. Yeah. But in a kind of world of finite resources and time and everything else, what are some quick wins or, or, or mm. tips that you might, you know, point us to where, you know, we can adapt existing learning, even if it might be a bit outdated? So I think a really good starting point is to um, is to have a strategy before you get you begin. So I think there's uh, in an ideal world, I would say if you think accessibly at the beginning rather than shoehorning it in at the end. And that's the issue that we have quite a lot because we have our mindset is we get to the end of the project and we think, oh, it's got to be accessible. And then then it's, as you say, and a lot of people have a lot of legacy content that does need to be, you know, that needs to be remediated. So I think there's two different strategies. I think with, you know, with new content, it is understanding more about accessibility and building it in upfront and that really does you know if you if your if your whole design process is, is inclusive it really does you know the, the, the saying that um, accessibility isn't more work you were just cutting corners before you were just you know you you weren't doing it properly kind of thing but if you know a lot of us in the situation where we have got existing work then I think there's a strategy so my that you know my best piece of advice is to, is to you know First of all, look at that body of work and decide, prioritise, you know, what, what is, you know, up front that you need to look at. And then maybe come up with, you know, 20 things that, that you can do easily. So it is things like adding, making sure that you've got captions, it's that colour content, it's the language, it's that you haven't got things, the moving content. So there's a whole, a whole load of tips. I've got some leaflets, actually, that are, I'll hand out that, that have got 20 tips in them that, for me, is my starting point. <laughs> OK. <laughs> and also, you can access that online. for, for uh... Brilliant. And I'm sure those can be made available yes, uh, if people will. are listening yeah. to the podcast. Um, one more quick comment or question from the floor. Woman in the front. Hi, I'm interested about the skill set. You were talking about, you know, having the right team around you. What would you say are the key, uh, the key skills that people need to have to be able to design content to meet, you know, accessibility and inclusivity? Yeah, good question. Not everybody can do this, can they? Well, I guess everybody could do it if they went to learn about it. <laughs> but not everybody might want to do that. It's a, it's a long uh, training to learn. But yeah, it, it's more about the, the mixture of the team members that you have. So I would definitely have an instructional designer and, and a developer or learning technologist if you we're talking obviously about digital learning. Because that, yeah, that's, they that's, translate... That's quite, a, that's quite a formal way of looking it at is, it. I wonder whether yeah, the I'm questioner meant what kind of soft skills, who's good at... Yeah. creating great content that works for everybody. Yeah, well, you you have to know about at least a little bit about learning, which I guess you would know <laughs> if you work in L&D. Um, the principles actually about how people learn are not different from how they learn face-to-face -face or digitally. Mm. So things like not overloading num uh, the amount of content, for example, or presenting it in a clear flow, following a logical flow that makes sense, and building on information, building on what people know already. All these kind of principles that make good learning, they also make good online learning. Um, so I think as a L&D professional, a lot of us know these things already, but then when we come to translate it online, there are additional considerations mm. to be made, and that's when, if, if we can, it's good to rely on other professionals as well. But if we start from the principles and the things that we already know, we're kind of halfway there already. I think from the accessibility point of view, if you have the the advantage of having someone who has a lived experience of a disability 
is phenomenal. And I think that we mm. quite often, because a lot of people, you know, in an organisation, sometimes they don't feel comfortable, um, you know, saying that they have got, for example, particularly with neuro neurodiversity. So quite often I find that people I'm working with in L&D, I don't know whether it's because of empathy or, you know, that they may, they have that kind of, you know, that experience. My, my own experience of working, for example, with a screen reader user who's, who's blind and has had, had, you know, been using it for years, who also has an L&D background is absolutely phenomenal because she gives me the perspective not of not only does it tick the boxes, but whether it's a good user experience for her. And if and coming back to the idea of in, inclusive learning, if I if I come up with a piece of learning that she says it works with a screen reader for her, only obviously one aspect, but if it works with a her assistive technology, but it's a good piece of learning, for me that's the accolade, that is what tells me it's a piece of inclusive learning, not just an accessible piece yeah. of learning. Yeah, I think if you, if you create content for people that you know, learning content for people that you know and that you can ask, that's definitely always a, a great starting point. Sometimes you create pieces of learning that you don't know who are going to actually utilize and access, and that's a bit more challenging maybe, but certainly if you create for your own employees, for example, colleagues, then definitely start by asking mm. what works for them. So test it out on people. Well, we've had some fantastic answers from both of you, so thank you very much, and thank, thanks to everybody who's attended this session. Uh, if this is your first taste of the CIPD podcast, then please uh, have a look at our recent back catalogue on the CIPD website. There's a lot of good uh, programmes there, and uh, many more good ones to come, I can tell you, in the next few months. So uh, until next time, from me, Nigel Cassidy, and all of us at the CIPD Festival of Work here, it's goodbye.